This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. Char Beauchard here. True story. I just hung up the phone with an SLP that had attended an on-site seminar. She said she loved the seminar, but she forgot to fill out her ASHA participant form. Sounds easy enough, huh? Uh-uh. The seminar was three months ago, and all the paperwork had been submitted, and ASHA doesn't take late forms. So I said, Linda, you have to file an appeal with ASHA. Then she said, this is a nightmare. I drove two hours to get there, two hours to get home, and now I have to file an appeal. I felt for her. And then I said, Linda, have you ever heard of SpeechTherapyPD.com? She said, no. I said, just get your CEUs online, girl. That's what I do. You don't have to leave home. They have over 500 hours of video, a huge variety of topics for SLPs that work with children and adults. And if you don't want to watch a video, then listen to the pod courses and get your CEUs that way. Then she said, they're pretty expensive, right? I said, uh, no. Their plans start at $89 a year, for heaven's sake. And then I said, do you want the icing on the cake? SpeechTherapyPD.com has scheduled a CEU cruise next summer to Italy and Greece. Woohoo! She said, okay, I'm looking them up right now. And so should you. SpeechTherapyPD.com. Check them out. Tell your friends. You'll be glad you did. Hello and welcome to The Speech Link, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Shara Beauchart, speech-language pathologist, and I invite you to join us as we share practical strategies to take your therapy to the next level. We'll talk with experienced experts who have achieved extraordinary results and teach you exactly what you need to do to do the same. Ready? Here we go. Armed with extraordinary and engaging YouTube videos, mostly animations, some with words, most without words, whiteboards to write on, and numerous varieties of thought bubbles, Dr. Anna Vagan does therapy. On this podcast, she clearly explains how to fun and effectively guide children through the very abstract but critically important world of social communication. There's no doubt about it. She's an expert on how to successfully use media to bring emotions forward and deal with them in the vital area of social learning. Her topic? Turn it on. Using media as social learning material. (laughs) And hold on, there's lots to learn here. Here we go. My guest today is Dr. Anna Vagan, a licensed speech-language pathologist who received her master's from the University of Redlands in California and her PhD from the University of California, Berkeley. She has over 30 years of experience and continues to do therapy in her private practice in Marin County in California. And she offers individual sessions on language and social thinking, as well as social learning groups with children, young adults, and their families, which I think is very cool. She's also a school consultant and an international seminar and conference presenter. She also has several videos at SpeechTherapyPD.com. One is YouTube for social learning. Another is strengthening the core of social cognition. And I also know that Anna has one coming up very soon on using engaging media and games to support social learning. I think it's safe to say that media and social thinking is Anna's first love in therapy. In fact, she's authored two books on social interaction and relationships, and you can learn more about her books, and also she has some great resources. In fact, I've re- you know, I, I looked at some of her resources that she's reviewed and tried and tested, and uh, they're incredible. And they're at her website called socialtime.org. 
Anna, honestly, I am enthralled with this topic. Um, you know, I did. I went to your website and I selected a couple of the short video animations, watched them, and was absolutely blown away with the content and the therapy possibilities. It, one even brought me to tears. <laughs> I am absolutely thrilled that you're here. Welcome to the speech link, Anna. Oh, thank you, Shar. It's really great to be here. And you're right. I am talking about a topic today that I absolutely love, and that's how can we use all the wonderful media that's out there to help our students who have social learning challenges. And I'm so glad you like some of the YouTubes. It's funny, I'm always trolling YouTube looking for, you know, my next my next favorite. And I'm always saying, oh, this is my favorite of all time. And then in two weeks, I'm like, no, this is my favorite of all time. Because there's such richness in YouTube. The stories are short, but they're beautifully told. They're incredibly crafted. The emotions are fabulous. The storylines, the characters are lovable. It, it's terrific. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. You know, I only watched two, <laughs> you know, um, you've probably watched hundreds, but I mean, I sat there enthralled with this. I mean, and, and we'll talk more about this later, but I'm just so excited. I just kind of feel like we need to stand on the mountaintop with our megaphone and share this with therapists because they are so useful and can be so beneficial with kids. So if you would, just to kind of get us started here, give us an overview as to how we can do that, how we can use media as social learning. Well, I think one of the things to do, and when I, when I speak, I hear a lot of people, you know, are a little unsure about where to start, because it is something that's really new in our field. And I think that you know, you referenced that I do have a lot of lists of my favorite YouTubes uh, that are on my website. People can always email me at annavagan at gmail.com asking me for these references because I have lists of what I think are fabulous YouTubes to work on emotions like anger and sadness. Also great YouTubes that we can just use for narrative. Because again, even students without social learning challenges are often working on narrative. And historically, we've used a lot of books and storybooks with, with our youngsters. But now there are fabulous videos that they can watch that are, again, a beautiful story and we can use them for narrative. I also have recommended lists of YouTubes for older students and young adults for working on cooperation, and just kind of my top picks. I just put out my top picks for 2018 for the first half of the year because there's always new YouTubes being created. And, you know, we used to always use books in therapy, and I certainly used a lot of books for social learning and for our students to be working on social understanding but interestingly, a lot of research has come out telling us that students on the autism spectrum oh. and with other social learning challenges are really struggling with processing social movement. So it really makes sense to use materials with them that are moving. And so what I generally recommend to therapists is to, first of all, just look at some of the YouTubes that are in my UQ Feelings book or are on some of my recommended lists or on my YouTube channel. Look at them and think, wow, who in my caseload might like this? Do I have a group that might really love Ormy the Pig? Do I have an individual student who might really like to watch Cloudy Lesson? To look at it and then look at some of my activities. And in this speech therapy PD uh, videos that I've done, I talk about and I show activities that we can use that are structured activities you know, we always want to go into a therapy session with a plan. We don't just want to go, you know, by the seat of our pants. We need to be responsible in our work. And so we need to have a sense of what activity could help this child perhaps understand feelings in a more diversified way. What task could help this student with perspective taking? What task might be able to help them understand what cooperation looks like? Part of the philosophy of my work with this is that if we help students first talk about feelings and social experiences of characters, 
using interesting characters. You know, we don't have to immediately go for their own experiences. Because first of all, these concepts are very abstract. And many of our students really need to understand the concept before they can apply it to themselves. It's also certainly easier to talk about other people and their perhaps social mistakes than to look at ourselves. And so I think a place where therapists can start is to look at some of the YouTubes, find ones that they think will be engaging to their students, look at the activities and think, well, I think that one might be a good place to start and try it out. You have to kind of just jump in. It's not as complicated as you think. There is a techie aspect to it of, you know, you have to get on YouTube, you have to find the YouTube, you have to know how to play a YouTube, how to pause it. But the learning curve, I think, is pretty quick. And the feedback I get from therapists is that it opens up a whole new section, a whole new host of materials for their practice with students. So I think that's always a good place to start. I love that information. Would you define, just quickly here, to you, what is social learning? Oh, I'd love to. And this is looking at the whole concept of social learning. It's a term that's been around for a very long time, initially coined by Bandura a long, long time ago. But the way that I look at it and apply it to students who have social learning challenges is that, you know, for for neurotypical students and kids and the way that most of us picked it up is just by social exposure. You know, social learning is about how do you understand how the social world and relationships work and how do you then be able to demonstrate that knowledge. But as we know, many of our students who may have autism spectrum disorder or a social pragmatic disorder, ADHD, social anxiety, for some reason, these students have not been able to make that bridge from social exposure into social performance. And so the way that we can help them, the social learning pieces that we want to help put in place are to help them understand, well, when you look at the world, what is relevant? What details are important to pay attention to? How do you organize those details? How do you use them? And then how do you respond and then continue to process social information that's coming at you to make small corrections in our behavior so that people are having good thoughts about us, so that people want to relate with us. They want to have friendships and conversations with us. So it's really about understanding how the social world works. For, lo- for lots of these stu- of our students, that's very abstract. And so that's our, it's a big job that we have is to help take these incredibly abstract ideas and help them understand them. That makes lots of sense. You mentioned a few of the characteristics or features of kids. How do we recognize a child that has some social learning issues? Well, again, it's going to be a continuum. There may be students who we see who who visibly stand out, who, you know, you're doing a school observation and you can kind of look at a playground and pick out, I see five students who I think are struggling socially on the playground. You know, they're wandering the periphery. They may be just sitting there, not engaging. Students aren't coming up to them. And those students are relatively easy for us to spot. But if we think about this continuum, other students who have social learning challenges may be more subtle. They may have that social pragmatic disorder. And so they're struggling with inference. They're struggling with understanding, perhaps in middle school, you know, students are manipulating them and saying, boy, if you go and eat some food out of the garbage, you know, I'll be your friend. And they take that at face value. They're not able to find to, to use their inferential skills to think, well, wait a minute, that that doesn't sound right. And this student never is really nice to me. And so I wonder if there's an ulterior plan. A lot of neurotypical students who are doing well socially would say, I'm not going to do that. But some students who have that social learning issue might say, OK, because I want a friend. And so there's a real continuum of some students having very subtle challenges and others being you know, much more impaired. So there's really a broad range. 
And so some of these students are diagnosed early. Some of these students are not diagnosed until until later elementary or beyond because they're not struggling, obviously. They're not perhaps behavior problems, but they don't have any friends. And so those students often need support as well. Wow. I'm just sitting here trying to think about some of the kids that I've worked with in the past, and they probably had social issues, but I didn't recognize them. And back then, if I'd recognized them, I probably wouldn't have known what to do with them. This is a crazy question, but is there a list of potential social learning issues? Well, Michelle Winner is really doing a lot of work in this. And on her website, socialthinking.com, there's incredible amounts of information. There's articles, there's materials, there's books, there's webinars. You know, she has done a lot to kind of organize this whole field. You know, it's a young field. When I was in graduate school, which was a long time ago, but still, uh, you know, none of this was covered. I mean, I had the privilege of studying with Carol Prudding at UC Santa Barbara, who was then working in pragmatics. I mean, this was called pragmatics initially, and then kind of popped out into a broader area. So all of this intervention is quite new. We're really in a learning process of how do we make this work? What do we do? How do we write goals about it? What materials are best to use? We're really still in the infancy of this field. And it's come so far. And it's, it's really exciting for me to think about how far we can, we can go further. You know, I'm always looking at media. And now when we think about using virtual reality and all of the virtual information, I mean, I think in the future there's going to be a, a social pragmatics, social learning test in which we put kids into situations via virtual reality to see how do they interact, how do they respond. Uh, it's, it's a very exciting time. Definitely. It is a huge area. And you mentioned Carol Prudding. And both of us went to school in Southern California. And I was an absolute groupie of Carol Prudding. I thought she was amazing. If she was doing a presentation, I would go. <laughs> I mean, I just loved her material and just the way that she presented it. She was so knowledgeable and it was all cutting edge. Yes. You know, I look back <laughs> at it and I think, wow, how did that lady know that? She truly was amazing. And that was a while back. Absolutely. It was a while back. And, and you know, her premature death was oh, such a loss to our I field. Know. It was just heartbreaking. She had a heart as big as all outdoors and had a, had a mind that was doing that, that creative thinking that would just put ideas together and transform them into thinking in the future. Yes. Well, she started something wonderful and you're picking up the ball here with the animation and, you know, YouTube media and carrying that ball and throwing it down the field. Let's get back to the child and, you know, the kids that we're working with. And I know the obvious kids are, you know, the kids on the spectrum and so on. But I'm thinking that there are a lot of children that absolutely need to investigate emotions. You know, I think back to when I was in a, a school in Southern California, this was a few years ago, and a third grade teacher came up to me and said that she was talking about emotions, about a character in the story, and the kids could not relate. And she said, what do I do? And this was just a normal, regular classroom. So I know that this is a really needed area. Okay, so, you know, I could see myself, oh, this is cute. I'm going to use it. <laughs> I looked at, what did I see? I saw, oh my gosh, the, the one that brought me to tears was sore. Oh, oh, it's beautiful. Alice too has done such, it's a beautiful story. It absolutely is. And there's no words. Well, most of the, words. yes, most oh. of the YouTubes that I recommend do not have dialogue. Because, and the, mu the music gives a lot of information, but the reason I like the YouTubes without words is that particularly for students who struggle with social learning challenges, they're often struggling most with processing the nonverbal information, the facial expression, the gestural. And if there's dialogue, they kind of latch on to the dialogue oh. and don't pay attention to anything else. 
And so SOAR is such a fabulous story. And it's interesting. One of the, you know, when I show a lot of videos, I did a lot of presenting recently and, you know, audiences would say, well, there's such a pattern. These aren't happy endings. They're not all happy endings in these stories. And I often have students who say, wait a minute, wait a minute, it's not a happy ending. And over the years, what I've realized is that many of these YouTubes really build resilience. And we know that many of our students with social learning challenges are not very resilient. The APA, the American Psychological Association, has a terrific uh, section on resilience on their website. And when we look at what are the factors to resilience, well, interestingly enough, the factors to resilience are actually the issues that many of our students struggle with. It's problem solving. It's being able to process feelings. It's being able to understand uh, what's happening in situations. It's being able to generalize. And so we can actually, a lot of our therapy can build resilience through kind of a backdoor channel of having students watch something like SOAR and then talk about how did that character, how did that girl keep trying to fix the airplane? She didn't give up. Wow, what do you think was happening inside her head? And that's when we start talking about inner voice. What is that voice in our head that keeps us going? Most of the students with whom I work are not resilient. They're not risk takers. They give up easily. They don't like to be uncomfortable. And so by watching these stories that are really engaging and relevant, they start to be exposed to seeing what resilience looks like. You know, when I was at, um, at ASHA, the ASHA convention last year, I heard Martha Burns speak, and she's this wonderful kind of neurolinguist. She's got a huge wealth of knowledge about neurology, and she's a speech-language pathologist. And, and the real takeaway I had from her was that we as clinicians want attention from the students with whom we're working. You know, we want them paying attention. But it's really on us. If our material is not engaging and relevant, we cannot expect attention. So if I have a student who's not paying attention, it's really not so much their fault as my fault. I am not doing enough to engage them. And what I found over the years, and you know, I initially started doing this media work with, with movies, is that, and now with YouTube, kids want to watch a YouTube. You turn on a YouTube and boy, they are razor attentive to that screen. But interestingly, not to the exclusion of either me or the other kids in the group. It really creates engagement and makes them want to communicate, makes them want to talk about funny moments or sad moments and give their opinions. I've often had people come up to me at conferences and say, you know, I'm really onto screens. I don't want to do a screen with my students because they get too many screens. It's important for us not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Not all screens are great. I certainly am not an advocate of 100% let kids watch anything they want. It's about the material. It's about what we're doing with the screen. That's what the American Academy of Pediatrics says. It's about what are you doing? What are they looking at? And so the YouTube material is so incredibly engaging. As our students get older, some of them get a little jaded with all the therapy they've had. You know, and, and a, a, a middle schooler or a high school student might come in and it's like, okay, so what are you going to show me that I haven't seen? And that's when you can say, oh, gee, do you ever watch YouTube? And they're like, yeah, you got YouTube. And that can hook them in in a whole new, refreshed way that's, that's just really exciting for them. And it's exciting for me as a clinician. Yes, that's wonderful. The engagement and then also that relevancy piece where they can see where it's not only fun and interesting, but it's relevant to them. And that just captivates them. Yes. Yeah. As we as human beings, it's not just them. Right. Yeah. 
I love it. Now, how do we do this? I mean, I could just say, oh, I like SOAR. And for those of you that are not familiar with, it's S-O-A-R. Yes. And then, um, okay, you mentioned A-L-Y-C-E. Is it Alice or Elise? I think it's Elise and then Sue. T-Z-U-A-E, I believe. T-Z-U-E, Elise Zoo. Soar. It was just amazing. I mean, and the thing is, there were so many components to it. I could see using that one and emphasizing so many different areas in there. Yes. They're very rich. The richness is amazing. They're very rich. So it's not like you have... I mean, I'm just asking this too. It's not like you have one video, one animation for, I'm going to say, quotes, each social issue, (laughs) because each video is going to have so many different areas that you can emphasize. Right. Is that what you do or is that how you approach it? Yes. And I'm actually working on a new product right now where I'm making pathways for clinicians, because I do think this is an area where especially... Uh, you know, younger clinicians are looking for guidance. I think, you know, experienced clinicians who've had, you know, 25 years of working with students, you have a skill set and you've learned how to put materials together and find that direction. Uh, but, But clinicians are still looking for support in that. And so I'm creating these pathways that, because what you're saying is exactly correct. I could use SOAR 40 different ways. I could use it with younger uh, students and in a more basic way. I could use it with older students in a more sophisticated way. What we also want to do is to show a diversity of YouTubes. Because if I'm working on, let's say resilience, we've already talked about that. And I show SOAR, which is very, the characters are incredibly resilient. But I want to show a lot of different examples of resilient. So I might want to show scavenger hunt in which this cute little raccoon is trying to cross the road to get to the dumpster. And, you know, the traffic is going and there's all these problems, but he doesn't give up. I want to show lots of different examples of the same social concept. And so that's what I'm working on. You know, in the book, in the UQ Feelings book, I list a lot of YouTubes and then give 50 different activities all focused on feelings. The first 25 are about the characters in the YouTubes. The second 25 are about building that self-reflection to self. So let's think about another and talk about another YouTube. Ormy the Pig was one of my favorites that I first found. And I thought, wow, this YouTube thing is really good. And so let's talk through a couple of activities. A good place to start, I believe, is always with feelings. And so I might ask my students, well, what feeling words do you know? And see if they only know happy, sad, mad. Do they perhaps know more than that? And then say, well, we're going to watch this great YouTube. See how many feelings you can find. We watch the YouTube and we might talk about the feelings afterwards. Say, how many did you see? Or we might watch it a second time where I stop it and I say, how do you think he's feeling right there? And all we're doing is talking about feelings and our social observation. Another activity that all students pretty much like is to give them marker boards and say, can you draw a picture of Ormi feeling a a comfortable feeling? Or can you draw a picture of Ormi feeling an uncomfortable feeling? That's a good 15-minute activity right there. Maybe the next week, I might say, hey, you guys want to watch Ormy again? Invariably, they will say, sure. They also think they're not going to be working if they're watching a YouTube. And this time I can stop it and say, what do you think he's thinking? And I can get a sticky note and we can make a little thought bubble and stick it right on my computer screen. That is, And then I might say, how's he feeling? And I might have another sticky where I write the feeling. So what we're doing there is we're making the abstract concrete. We're making, we're drawing it and we're writing it and we're pairing thought with feeling. Then what happens, especially with Ormi, he has a different feeling. Five seconds later, he has a completely different feeling. So there we're starting to talk about feeling shift. Feelings are always in flux. 
many of our students really struggle with that. They don't like transitions. They don't like change. They don't like it when their feelings change. And so, again, we're exposing them to kind of aspects of our human experience. Our feelings do change all the time. But let's not start with ourselves. Let's watch Ormi because he's so cute. What a great idea to find Ormi. How do you spell his name? O-R-M-I-E. And so for those few people who don't know how to do this, you go online and you go to youtube.com and there will be a YouTube search box. And that's where you want to type these titles of YouTubes. And so Ormi the Pig uh, is pretty easy to find and it has millions of views. I'm not sure what it's up to now, but it is millions and millions of views. Sometimes I think they're all me that I've watched it a million times. Uh, And so you punch that in, you know, in uh, most of my, so when I have my recommended lists, I have the YouTube name. I have often the person who made it and I have a short description. You want to always make sure that the video matches the short description because there are billions of YouTubes on YouTube and you want to make sure you show the right one this might be a good time for me just to pop in with some really important guidelines for using YouTube. And I always say this when I present, never, ever, 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 never, never show a YouTube that you have not watched in its entirety before your session. Mm -hmm. You never want to show something that you have not watched start to finish. And you also never want to allow a student to pull up a YouTube themselves. They'll often say, I've got a great one. Oh, let me call it up. We can watch it. And my answer always is, let me write it down and I will check it. Because students will always, oh, you're going to like it, Anna. You're going to like it. It's fun. It's appropriate. And I'll look at it. And it's often one of two things. It's 27 minutes long. (laughs) Yeah. Or it is inappropriate. And within five seconds, something has happened that is just not okay, there is so much richness out there, never lower your standards and only show what is wonderful. Because, you know, things are questionable. You always want to err on the side of conservative. You want to think about your community. You want to think about, you know, is this a student with anxiety? You are never going to show a student with anxiety a YouTube where there's real trouble. It's just not a good choice. Right. So you want to pair, you want to make good choices, and you want to always know, what am I going to do with this? Not that, I think I'll just show this and something good will come up. We have to really be responsible. We may have to educate parents or administrators about what we're doing so that we don't get that email of, boy, Anna, I hear you're just watching YouTube when I'm paying you to do therapy. You know, we really need to be responsible but given all of those cautions, there's, there's tons of fabulous stuff out there, just fabulous. So you go to YouTube and you look for these and you, you just make sure that you've seen everything there is and that you have an idea of where you're going with the, with the particular video. Hey, Busy SLP, Char Beauchart here. Here's a tip from me to you. Every week, become a lot more informed. Sign up for Therapy Matters at charbochart.com. It's free. Learn our tech and language tips and techniques and tons of ideas for making your school therapy life easier and more effective. I've been a therapist for 30 plus years and I love to share what I've learned. Sign up for Therapy Matters, read it or listen to it at charbochart.com. You'll be glad you did because the therapy that you do matters. Sign up now. So you try and kind of match the video with the child, his situation, who he is, what he's lacking, his inabilities. Now, you know, take me through a, th- a typical therapy session. You have a new video that you want to introduce to the child. Do you describe it to the child or do you just say, oh, here's this new video. Let's watch it together. And you watch it in its entirety. Then what do you do? Because when you were talking about writing the little speech bubbles and so on, in my mind, I'm thinking, hmm, 
hmm, I wonder if she stops the video every once in a while and you do a speech bubble, stick it up there, and then you start over again. I mean, what does this look like? That's a great question. So yes, I let students watch the whole thing all the way through one time. And again, most of these are only four or four minutes or so. So it doesn't take very long. Then I'll go back and we'll watch it again. And that's when I stop it. Again, I know the YouTube pretty well. You have to have watched it so you know when is a good time to freeze it. Okay. Just yesterday, I had three girls here in a group. And it was, it was interesting because they, they were struggling yesterday and two of them decided they weren't going to talk anymore. Okay. Uh, but I have these dry erase spe- uh, thought bubbles. And so I said, okay, we'll watch a YouTube. And we were watching Cat's Meow by Jorge Garcia. It's another, it's a very simple little story, but wonderful. Mm-hmm. Each girl had a thought bubble, a marker board, and a pen. And we watched it all the way through. They loved it. And I said, okay, we're going to watch it again. So we watched it and I would freeze it when one of the characters, it's either a cat or a man, you know, had a great facial expression. And I would say, okay, write your thought bubble for that cat. And each of them, they were talking, but they were happy to write, would write the thought bubble. And then I had them come up, bring it up to my computer, hold it over the cat's head. And I took a little quick picture on my iPhone. So that was really motivating to this group that was really struggling yesterday. And so if you didn't write one, there was nothing to take a photo of. So all of them were eagerly scribbling because they wanted to be first to get photographed. Ah. It really engaged them. What was interesting that there was one freeze frame and one of the girls really missed it with her thought bubble. She was so far off. It was intriguing to me that she thought he was thinking about how much he loves the cat. He's really not. He's actually angry with the cat. And I was so struck at how off she was in her thought bubble. And if she can't understand a thought in a two-character, slow-moving, very basic story, That's why she's missing all of the thought bubbles of classmates on the playground. And that's why she's struggling so much. And so we cannot expect her to do it on the playground in real time if she can't do it in a quiet office with a freezed picture that she's interested and engaged about. She still doesn't get it. This student needs a lot of work on using her eyes to figure out how people think and what information we can we can be told. And so that's how we went through it. I, I probably froze it. They probably did, I would say, eight thought bubbles. So we froze it eight times throughout the video. And that was a good chunk of work for these girls. Again, even though they were struggling and didn't really want to talk, they did it. They did this task and they liked it. It kind of brought them around. They started talking after that. You just never know what's going through their mind. You know, what happened prior to, to the, yeah. the session yep. <laughs> or, oh, I think I'm just going to take control here. Or they heard somebody do it and they thought they'd do it. It was catching. Uh, and it's a group that's just getting started. How old were the girls? These are uh, third and fourth grade girls. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I do think that girls struggle more than the boys do. Really? Because peers are both socially... The neurotypical girls are often super advanced and they're super judgmental. They're more judgmental than boys and they're more clicky and they're often more, un- they don't, ha- they're not as kind sometimes. And so I really feel that a lot of the girls in my practice struggle a lot more than the boys. You know, often the boys can get away just with running together. You know, young boys are, are not as socially sophisticated as girls are. And girls are really struggling and, and their issues are often a little bit deeper. And so this particular group of girls yesterday is a relatively new group. This was only our third session together. 
They have high anxiety. (laughs) Very interesting. Yeah, we're both girls here, so uh, we can probably relate to a little bit of that. It was quite a day yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But let's shift gears. And I'm sitting here thinking about how do you transfer this? We can sit and, and watch the YouTube videos and explore the emotions of the characters and what they're feeling and what they're saying. But how do we actually transfer that to the child? Yes. Well, you know, what, to, to talk about that, I want to go back because we had already talked about watching Soar or Ormy and having students, you know, think about what do you think the character is thinking that gets them to keep going? And students were saying things like they're thinking it's no big deal. It's okay. I can figure this out. And so, you know, we combine those into, wow, there are all kinds of thoughts we can think to get us over bumpy spots. And I put those thoughts on foam board. And I've developed lots and lots of different ones. And some of them are called stuck fixers, you know, thoughts that we can think when we're inflexible, like it doesn't have to be perfect. It's okay. No big deal. Or game playing fixers. It's just a game. It's okay. Maybe I'll get a better role next time. And so we took the same thoughts that they had said that would work for characters. We put them on a little board and then we said, Let's play a game and see if these can help us. Or for an older group, you know, you guys are going to do some work with um, uh, this building project I have where you make circuits, snap circuits. You you two are going to work to make a snap circuit. And if I had the sense that they were becoming inflexible or they were struggling, I just took that list of thought bubbles and kind of, jiggled it in front of them, they looked at it and they would say, okay, no big deal. And that's how they're starting to internalize and transfer those thought bubbles that you and I think naturally, hopefully, you know, when we have a problem, let's say a tech problem, to ourselves, we're saying, it's okay, we'll figure this out. Our students don't do that. And so by having it as a visual that they've developed themselves, You hear them say, it's okay, it's okay. And then over time, I would say to the same kids, let's do another building project or whatever. Do you guys need the stuck fixer bubbles? And at some point they say, no, we don't need them. And so you don't have them propped up. But what you hear is you hear students say, it's okay, I'll figure it out. You hear them that they've internalized those comments that they did not have before. Now, some groups do that very quickly. Other groups might take a few months to do that. And then what also is a good uh, thing to do is to then make sure that the teacher has those stuck fixers. Or one time I had a little league coach that posted them in the dugout because basically everyone on the little league team needed to realize it was just a game. Give it to the eight, give it to the parents. I have parents who have it on their phones so if their student is having, if their child is having a meltdown because the black high tops don't come in their size, the parent can pull it up on their phone and just kind of stick it in front of their face. Because when a child is struggling, talking is not always the right thing to do. We're always trying to talk and fix things. It doesn't always work that way. Sometimes we have to let a visual support do the work. It's less, uh, it doesn't engage as much and we're not opening ourselves up for argument. Wow. In working with kids, and you have all different ages and so on, you used the term inner voice a while back. And I've used the term in my own therapy, inner conversation. And I've frequently wondered, are my kids actually thinking? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And throughout the day, we ask ourselves questions. I mean, that's how you make a decision throughout the day. When should I get up? What do I want for breakfast? You know, um, yeah. Which jeans am I going to wear? Yes. Always asking ourselves questions. Right. That inner dialogue. Yes. Do you actually address that where you say, use your inner voice, talk to yourself mm-hmm. about it. Here's something that you could ask yourself. Do you get that specific and intricate? Yes, a- absolutely. And on the speech therapy PD 
uh, I think on the first six hour one, but certainly on the one that I think is going to be coming up that I did this summer, there are certain acts, there are specific activities to work on inner voice because that is very important. I've had students draw what their inner voice is saying. And let me tell you, it's often not very positive. What we know from theory, you know, Vygotsky proposed that we don't have our inner voice until we have our outer voice, that you don't have intra-speech until you've had inter-speech. And that's very telling because many of our students are not very good at conversation. Their inter-voice is not very good. But you're absolutely right. That's why parents of young children, let's say that their shoelace breaks and the parent is like, oh, wow, your shoelace broke. It's okay. You know what? We'll go to, we'll go to CVS and we'll buy another pair of shoelaces. And then that conversation allows us when we're older and our shoelace breaks to talk in our own head and say, oh, it's okay. It's just a shoelace. I'll go, I'll stop by CVS on my way home and pick up more shoelaces. But I think that's a very good point to bring up is we do have to talk with students about all of this, the sophisticated process, processes that go on to make us social creatures and and to make it a conversation. Again, so that we're really sharing what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to have different intelligences? What does it mean to have inner voice? You know, what does it mean to be resentful when we sometimes are in a position of being kind? You know, we all feel resentment sometimes. Our students feel they are the only ones who have it. And so having that, even that conversation of, do you ever not want to do something? Boy, I sure do. (laughs) And students are like, you do? Yeah, sometimes I really don't want to help somebody. You don't? They are shocked because, again, they haven't picked it up through social osmosis. So we have to be clear. We have to be honest that being human can be tough and being in relationships can be challenging. Social osmosis. I have never heard that. (laughs) I've never said that before. I kind of like it. You've never said it? No. (laughs) I really like that. Write it down, girl. (laughs) I'm writing it down. (laughs) That's that's your next book. (laughs) Okay. You know, Anna, I don't think that I even mentioned the name of your books. And they just, everything that I've read about them, they just look so practical. And I just, I can't wait to get them. The first one here that I have here is Movie Time Social Learning. Would you tell us a little bit about your books? Movie Time Social Learning, Michelle Winter published it. uh, And it was my first book about using media. And it is about full-length movies. YouTube wasn't even around when I wrote that book. And so it has actually quite a few chapters just on mediating social learning. And then there are seven movies that have lesson plans that go scene by scene. Wow. So every scene in the movie has activities that you do, whether you're working on feelings or perspective taking or empathy. Uh, And so that was a great book. And then the second book, UQ Feelings, using videos for online, using online videos for social learning. Uh, again, that's just about expanding understanding feelings. And it has uh, 25 YouTube recommendations and then 50 activities that focus just on feelings and how to build both understanding of feelings and characters and then building that ability to be self-reflective. And there's something new in the works, but I'm not even sure what it is yet. I think it might be an app, but I'm not sure. Oh, okay. Well, good. Well, I'm amazed at your knowledge, the depth and breadth. And also, this area is huge, isn't it? I never really realized that. Yes. I'm probably going to have to have you back. Okay. Love to be back. Okay. We need to do at least one more of these. Okay. Now, in our last couple of minutes, I do have a question that's a little outside the box here. Okay. And it is... Would you please share your favorite therapy insight or nugget with us? Ah, I'd love to. I have a, it might be a surprising nugget. Okay. And that is our, as therapists, our use of silence. Basically, I think speech language pathologists like to chat and we like to talk (laughs) and we like to cue Mm -hmm. and we think we've got the best ways to prompt the responses that we want to get back. But what I've really learned and what I really emphasize in lots of my presentations is that we really have to shut up. 
We really have to be quiet. Most of the students with whom I work are slow processors. They are slow formulators and they are slow expressors. And we have to, you know, we present them with information. We give them enough information. And then our silence sends the message of, I know you know. I know you will give me an answer. And I'm going to wait, not looking at my phone, not checking my texts. I'm going to be present and I'm going to wait for your answer because I have trust that you know it. And what happens, and and we sometimes have to wait for a minute. A minute is a really long time not to prompt. But what we get from the child is we get spontaneity. We get a spontaneous production. They tell us something that they are thinking. It might not be what we think is the right answer. But what we want from students is spontaneous thought, not response to questions. And so my nugget is to experiment with silence. It's so productive and it's so hard to do. Very insightful. And that's from a lady who's been doing therapy for a long time. And it makes total sense. And I fully understand where you're coming from. I probably wouldn't have thought of that in my first year of therapy or even my fifth year of therapy. But you kind of learn to do that or to notice that you need to do it. And it really is difficult to do because I want to be the speech therapy police. Right. And yeah, it really says a lot to them when we just sit quietly and wait for them to process and to express. I fully agree. That's a great insight. I think it's a lot. I think it's a lot about our egos. (laughs) It probably is. Is that we want to get the answer because then that means that we're doing things right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a whole nother topic. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, Anna, this has been wonderful. I'm just thrilled with all of your information that you shared. And you've really just kind of lit a fire and an excitement. And I want to learn more about this. I really do. So I just thank you. Oh, I've so enjoyed our conversation. This has been just a pleasure, Char. Me too. Well, thank you so much. We'll talk again. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Speech Link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charvochart.com, and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well, and God bless.